Welcome to the sermon podcast feed of Liberty Church Collingswood, where we want to live, speak, and serve as the very presence of Jesus in Collingswood and surrounding boroughs, or wherever God has placed you. Find us at libertycollingswood.org. Part of our mission is preaching sermons, so here you go. Keep in mind that these messages are designed to bring the timeless message of Jesus to bear in specific contexts to specific people, the whole eternal word, changing worlds thing. Would you hear good news here? Bon appétit. We are now addressed by the living Lord through his living word. A song. A psalm of the sons of Korah. To the choir master, according to Mahaloth Leonoth, a maskil of Haman the Ezrahite. O Lord, God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry, for my soul is full of troubles. My life draws near to Sheol. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I am a man who has no strength, like one set loose among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave, like those whom you remember no more, for they are cut off from your hand. You have put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavy upon me. You overwhelm me with all your waves, Selah. You have caused my companions to shun me. You have made me a horror to them. I am shut in so that I cannot escape. My eye grows dim through sorrow. Every day I call upon you, O Lord. I spread out my hands to you. Do you work wonders for the dead? Do the departed raise up to praise you, Selah? Is your steadfast love declared in the grave or your faithfulness in Abaddon? Are your wonders known in the darkness or your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? But I, O Lord, cry to you. In the morning, my prayer comes before you. O Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? Afflicted and close to death from my youth up. I suffer your terrors. I am helpless. Your wrath has swept over me. Your dreadful assaults destroy me. They surround me like a flood all day long. They close in on me together. You have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companions have become darkness. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's take a moment to pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you here this morning that we are able to reckon and grapple with a dark and a sad part of your scriptures. Father, give us your Holy Spirit now to illumine this, your very word to us, and would you graciously meet us, perhaps in whatever darkness we find ourselves facing here this morning, would we know the light and welcome of your Son, Jesus Christ. So be with us now, we pray, for our good and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. At least a few of you know that the first church that I pastored years and years ago now was in West Philadelphia, the West Philly section of the city. And a lot of the time, the ministry context that I was working in there was pretty similar, if you were here a few weeks ago, to the ministry update that I gave with a church that we support here in South Jersey, Epiphany Gloucester City. 
So in a lot of ways, my little church in West Philadelphia straddled a lot of lines of gentrification that are going on in University City in West Philadelphia. We loved being there, but because in many ways our church was ministering in a low-income context, we faced as a church ministry challenges related to such low-income contexts like these. So often in our congregation and in our midst, there were financial crises of different kinds. And not financial crises of the 401k type, but financial crises of the groceries type, not having any food. Financial crises as in evictions. Financial crises as in electricity has been turned off or heat has been turned off. I did a lot more funerals, literally more funerals in my few years in West Philadelphia than I've done in the entire remainder of my ministry up to this point because mortality rates are higher in lower income areas. That's just true in prison visits. I did a lot of those. If you're a pastor or a priest in an area with an aged congregation, you have to build into your schedule doing the hospital rounds, visiting people in the hospital, checking up on them, especially at certain seasons of my life in West Philadelphia, prison visits were just part of what I did. And there was one beloved member in particular who, incidentally, if you were listening a couple weeks ago, this is a different member of our church than the one that I talked about in a different connection then. A beloved member of our church was sentenced at one point to six years in prison. And we were rocked. We loved this guy. He was a dear brother of ours. And our church was never big in West Philly at the time, probably around 20 people. And so do the math. I was a math major in college. And if it's a 20-person church and one person is going away to prison, that's 5%. In one fell swoop of our entire church becoming incarcerated. But the amount of energy and life that this person brought to our congregation, it felt like it was 50%. And we were gutted when the verdict came down. Viscerally, there was going to be a hole left in our community. And our friend would say things like, it's okay, I'm going to prison. And when he came to us, he was transparent. Yeah, I have some legal issues that are still in process. Not sure how it's going to go. There, I hope that I don't have to serve prison time, but I might. And he pled guilty. He owned up to everything. And he said, I was hoping not to have to go to jail, but I am. I'll serve my time. That's okay. But I'm going to miss my church. I'm going to miss my family. And we stayed connected with this person Throughout the six years, if you have a loved one in prison, you know the sad rhythms and routines that you engage in. The letters, the care packages, some of which get all the way through, some of which are confiscated, some of which are sent back. Figuring out the system as to how to add money to, this, to your loved one's commissary to be able to buy little things and extra food. The collect calls, phone rings, you pick up the phone, there's a pause, an automatic voice says, you have a collect call from so-and-so at such-and-such -such state correctional institution. The cost of this call is X amount per minute for 10 minutes maximum. Press one to accept the call. We learned those rhythms. And we knew we had 
as I recollect, about a six-week buffer where we found out that this person was going to prison and then money was going to go in. Sentencing was on such and such a date, and so we circled the Sunday before that and said, this Sunday is going to be our beloved friend's last Sunday at church. And I forget what I was planning on preaching on that day, but I remember what I did preach on because I called an audible. I don't do that that much anymore. But back in the day, when I was a younger preacher, I would sometimes prepare a sermon and then preach a different one on Sunday morning. Seemed like a good idea at the time. I don't know if it actually was. But I did call an audible and preach this psalm that Sunday. Psalm 88 that I read a couple of moments ago is arguably the darkest psalm in the entire scriptures. And that was a really dark Sunday for us. And so it fit. I preached that sermon. And so this morning we return to Psalm 88 once again, and I can't think about this psalm without thinking about my friend. And we're going to be talking here this morning about gospel friendship. Friendship and community in the Church of Jesus Christ founded on Jesus. And the reason that I went back to this psalm here is that we see the importance of community by its absence. By its absence. Being lonely is really, really hard. Being lonely is really, really hard. And this Psalm 88 here this morning is a lament of loneliness. And this is what I've been praying that you, that we, would take away here this morning. If you're lonely, you're not alone. If you're lonely, you're not alone. If you're lonely, you're not alone. And the church has a job to do. We and if you consider or are beginning to consider Liberty Church Collingswood your home, we have a job to do. To make new friends and make new family. And more than that, Jesus died. And Jesus rose again. So that ultimately and eternally, you would not be alone that the living Lord would be with you. So let's talk Psalm 88 in two parts for the rest of this morning. Let's talk first about how you're not alone, and then let's make it so. Two parts. You're not alone. And then also, let's make it so. Here we go. This is the sermon series for the gospel of Lent, for the season of Lent, talking about gospel friendship. We are in the midst of our Represence Initiative doing a lot of different things. You can go to our website if you want to find out more about it. And as part of the Represence Initiative, this 24-month rollout that we're doing for the church and post-Christian and post-COVID world, we are practicing different aspects of the presence of God in our lives. And so for all of these Sundays in Lent, we are going to talk through different practices of presence and gospel friendship Gospel community is one of them. But here's the thing. I almost skipped this one. I almost skipped this one. 
And that's not because I'm against friendship. Please don't hear, wow, my pastor said that he's against friendship here this morning. That took a turn that I didn't realize. There are more practices of presence in the Represence Initiative that we've identified than there are Sundays in Lent. So a couple of them we're going to go and talked about. I was planning on not talking about gospel friendship, specifically because we spent most of all of the last school year talking about that last time. Maybe some other things were more important. But then in a staff meeting talking with Eric Mitchell, our executive pastor, he said, hey man, what if we should talk about gospel friendship? and gospel community again, because we need it, because our friendships are struggling right now. As part of post-pandemic world, the great sort, the great resignation, there's also a great shuffling, I think, as it relates to friendship. And so I went to Psalm 88, thinking about friends in Jesus. And like I mentioned a couple of moments ago, treat Psalm 88 like the importance of community in photo-negative. Oh, this is what happens when you don't have friends. It looks like this. And it's really dark. It's really low. For example, verses 3 to 5. For my soul is full of troubles, and my life draws near to shale. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I am a man who has no strength, like one set loose among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave, like those whom you remember no more, for they are cut off from your hand. The psalmist here, whoever this person was, is feeling so low that the psalmist is as good as dead. And I'm not going to take time here on Sunday morning to go and maybe you saw words like underworld and Sheol and Abaddon. If you want to know more about that, you could always email in to postsundayblues at gmail.com. And we'll debrief that a little bit on the sermon debrief podcast this coming week. But this psalmist is low. And you have evocative image after evocative image here in this psalm. Again, verses 6 and 7. You have put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you overwhelm me with all your waves. And so on. And scholars have commented that for all of the psalms in the Bible, and there's 150 of them, for all of the psalms in the Bible, this is the only one that doesn't have a happy ending. This is the only one that doesn't contain a turn. So if you ever studied sonnets, for example, Shakespearean sonnets in high school, something like that, you may know that in certain sonnets, including Shakespeare's, there's a turn two-thirds of the way through. So the poem is going in one direction, but then all of a sudden it starts going in another direction, starting at the turn. And often in Psalms, what happens is Psalms of lament, Psalms of a lot of problems, midway through the Psalm, maybe later in the Psalm, the Psalmist says, but then I cried out to God and he answered me. He delivered me from up out of the pit. He rescued me from all of my foes. He put my feet on level ground and I am satisfied. Compare those turns, those happy endings, with how Psalm 88 ends. You have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companions have become darkness. And then the curtain falls on the psalm. I first learned this psalm in the New International Version. Darkness is my only friend. And then this one in the English Standard Version that I use, 
my companions have become darkness. I, I really like both of these both of these transgressions, both of these translations. I like the NAV one. Darkness is my only friend. I think it has some poetic punch, and I'm a Simon and Garfunkel fan, right? So, darkness, you're my only friend. Come to talk with you again. But then I think I like even more the ESV version here because unusually for Hebrew, the ancient language in which this is written, construction, the last word of the psalm is darkness. It just ends. There is no more light. There's no more light. And I'm intrigued by this psalm because there aren't a whole lot of details about what's going on with this person, except that this person is really low, so that because there's less details, on the other hand, it's easier for us and universally connectable. Or to put it a little more precisely than that, this psalm here, it's emotionally vivid, but externally vague. Emotionally vivid. There are so many images that describe the lowliness of what this person feels, and it seems like to be without community, to be without friends, to be so low, it's death. Vividness there. But exactly what's going on, we're not so sure, except pretty much the only clues that we see about what's going on externally is we see that this person is alone and isolated and separated from community. Verse 8, for example. You have caused my companions to shun me. You have made me a horror to them. I am shut in so that he cannot escape. You have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companions have become darkness. That's what we've got in terms of what's going on. It's as if to say, to be a human being without human community is inhuman. It's like death itself. That's what the Bible says. As we've seen earlier from our Genesis sermon series, God said in the creation of our first parents, Adam and Eve, it is not good for man to be alone. And whether you're here this morning or worshiping online as a committed Christian, somebody continuing to explore spiritual reality, somebody who may be deeply skeptical of all of this stuff, I think we would agree and it would resonate that it is not good for us to be alone. We need other people. We need friends. But for skeptical friends of mine, I'd want to push that just a little bit in gracious conversation and say, okay, we agree that human community is good and very necessary for us, but why? Why? And as I read the literature and listen to stuff, in my view, if you're just a materialist, just secular, there's no God above, no heaven above, no hell beneath. If this material world is all there is, and it's always been this way, sort of the answer is, well, human community is good from an evolutionary or developmental perspective, where over time it became evident, as we developed as human beings, that forming communities, that taking a step of learned altruism for banding together, for protection against other tribes and predators, that propagates the success of your own line. And to me, that's pretty much the bottom line answer. But in my view, there's got to be more than that. And that can't be the story. 
It doesn't fit with the witness of our own minds and souls to why we need community. Put it this way. Say you go out to dinner with old friends, and it's an awesome time. The lights are dim. The wine is flowing. The food is rich. The conversation's deep. And then at the end of the night, your dining companion says, this has been great. I so value our friendship. And I feel that this evening will serve very well for the propagation of the success of my line. You'll leave that dinner thinking, so this is what it feels like to have dinner with a Nazi, right? The Bible says instead, it's not good for man to be alone because we're made in the image of God. And part of being in the image of God is needing God and needing other people. That's how we're wired. And if being apart from community feels like death itself, having friends, being in community, that's the marrow. That's life itself. It's not good for us to be alone. As we think about building human community and friendships, I think we'd have to say that it's always been hard, and then also it's getting harder. It's always been hard. A couple of recent writers that I love to read, Robert Stone, recently deceased, talked about how being with other people is hard. Robert Stone, our having each other is both the good news and the bad. We need people. But the problem with needing other people is that they're people. And so are we. Another recent writer, Vivian Gornick, put it this way about how we have internal blockers to human community. Human beings are locked from birth into a psychology of shame, inexplicable and puzzling, that contributes to our inability to seek the consolation of company in our worst hours of need. When we're really low, we don't want to reach out. We are embarrassed by our own vulnerability. So it's always been hard. But I believe that there are factors and forces at work in our world that many, from faith perspectives or from non-faith perspectives, that continue to observe staying together is really, really tough. One recent writer observed this. Our culture is oddly stuck. We want stability and rootedness, but also mobility, dynamic capitalism, and the liberty to adopt the lifestyle we choose. We want close families, but not the legal, cultural, and sociological constraints that made them possible. This is where we're careening as a culture. We want maximum freedom all the time, no matter what, and full and rich and deep community at the same time. You can't turn both up to 11. There's got to be a give on your freedom and individuality if you want to have friends, if you want to have community. Because that's just how it works. More recently, I read an article in the Atlantic magazine that for my money has been the best consideration of the stresses on friendship that I've seen in the past couple of years. A writer a little bit older than me called Jennifer Senior, and the article is called It's Your Friends That Break Your Heart. And she said this, were friendships always so fragile? I suspect not. But we now live in an era of radical individual freedoms. All of us may begin at the same starting line as young adults, but as soon as the gun goes off, we're all running in different directions. There's little synchrony to our lives. We have kids at different rates or not at all. We pair off at different rates or not at all. We move for love 
for work, for opportunity and adventure and more affordable real estate and healthier lifestyles and better weather. Yet it's precisely because of the atomized, customized nature of our lives that we rely on our friends so much. We're recruiting our friends into the roles of people who once simply coexisted with us. Parents, aunts, uncles, cousins, fellow parishioners, union members, Rotarians, and so on. Because we're so mobile and lack rootedness, we have less family and community structures naturally. So we lean on friendships more, but it's the friendships that are precisely more mobile and more fragile all across the board. No wonder we're stuck. No wonder we're struggling. And it was in that same article where Jennifer Sr. pointed out a Pew study from the fall that I hadn't been aware of. It's a statistic. Take it for what it's worth. 38% of Americans now say that they feel less close to friends during pandemic that they know well. During pandemic, just about 40% of people say they're less close to their friends. 40%. I was a high-level mathematics person. I got a PhD in it. That's almost half of people during pandemic that have said, I am less close to my friends now. It's getting harder. And then there's also our old bug bugaboo or our new nemesis polarization that makes friendships so much harder than they used to be. It used to be just Thanksgiving and Christmas, where you go to friends and family that you see maybe once or twice a year and you... You talk yourself up. If you, maybe you're in a home meeting here at Liberty Collingswood, you ask for prayer and say, hey, I'm going back. It's going to be rocky. But what used to happen in terms of stressing our relationships only at Thanksgiving and Christmas, that now extends all the way to any old backyard barbecue or happy hour. And I'm not blaming you individually if, if you've registered this after one of those things. I'm just observing that in larger, larger cultural movements, have you been in the situation where you're at that barbecue or you're at that happy hour and the conversation takes a turn, especially politically, and you're not comfortable and you leave saying, I am never going to hang out with these people ever again. I just can't do it. And studies are mounting that also show that people are more liable and willing than ever to cut off friendships and to cut off relationships within family. So we are atomized. And instead, we fall back on what I'll call affinity friendships. Affinity friendships are when you're most comfortable and pretty much only hang out with people that are like you, whether it's ethnically or racially or age and stage or politically. Affinity friendships, they're just easier in that direction. And I'll say this about affinity friendships. They're like food groups. When I was in my 20s, I was aware of two different food groups, protein and carbs. When I was in my 30s, I learned about a third food group, not protein and carbs. I'm still exploring and examining that food group. But from what I understand, if you want to be healthy and have a balanced diet, you need different food groups, right? And so, of course, it makes sense. Let one of your groups of friends be that affinity food group where you grew up watching the same shows and listen to the same music and have the same touchstones and you don't have to explain the jokes or worry quite as much about offending other people because you understand where they're coming from. That's good. But if those are your only friends, you might be growing unhealthy. Because if it's only that affinity friendship, it's echo chamber. 
and you're reinforcing instead of discovering each other's blind spots. And you're not being stretched by difference, having to think of things in different ways and having a friendship across barriers that are rich so much on its own terms. But we just fall back and fall back and fall back. And so often in our lives, my companions have become darkness. And so with this psalm here, understand that you are not alone. Here's something about Psalm 88 that you might not realize. It's in the Bible. Now you know. It's in the Bible. And you may or may not have thought before, 150 psalms, and we've talked a couple different sermons this year about doctrine or scripture type stuff, the Bible that we have, the Bible that God has given to us. It's infallible, it's inerrant, it's perfect in everything that it claims and teaches. But then also 150 psalms within that inspiration process, these 150 psalms weren't written all at the same time and by the same person. There must have been an editorial collating process under the sovereign guidance of God that caused us to arrive at these 150. And who knows, but just saying, maybe in the editorial bullpen, there was a little bit of conversation about Psalm 88. This is too dark. There's no turn. There's no happy ending. We can't include it. But God's gracious provision for us is that often in our lives, or at least sometimes, there's no turn. There's no happy ending. So if your psalm, if your song, either right now or another time, is my companions have become darkness, you are seen by this psalm. You are seen by the living Lord that inspired this psalm. Think of it like music. How many of us are throughout generations? Maybe you're a teenager, you're lonely, and you're thinking that nobody understands me. I am all alone. I am all isolated. But you hear this song, or this artist, or this album on AM radio, on FM radio, on a 45 on an LP, on a CD, on a cassette, on a Napster file, on iTunes, on Spotify. And it speaks to you. And you think, nobody around here gets me at all. But halfway across the country, halfway across the world, there's somebody that does. More than that, the God of the universe gets you knows you, understands, loves you. This psalm is in the Bible, and we can sing it together. We can sing this lonely lament together, and maybe that's a step in itself of moving towards community. And understand, too, that Jesus took the darkness for you. My companions have become darkness. As David mentioned earlier, Jesus died noonday, but then darkness later on covered the face of the earth. As Jesus, the son, in effect, said to his father, Lord, let the darkness of our world come upon me. The darkness of loneliness, of isolation, of brokenness, of sickness, of fallenness, of sin. Let me die for it and conquer it to give freedom and forgiveness that for all that come to me in faith. And so if you're in darkness, Jesus is there with you. 
this season of Lent, we're going out with Jesus into the wilderness, and maybe for some of us, it's also going to be going out with Jesus into the darkness, but he suffered the darkness for you and conquered it in resurrection light, so that you are not alone. And let's make it so. Let's make it so. Reach up and reach out. If your companions have all become darkness, reach up, call out, cry out to God. Let God be your anchor and let the church be your ship. Let God be your anchor. Cry out to God. God, I'm isolated. I'm lonely. I'm in darkness. Are you there? Can you help me? Can you fill me? And this psalm, if you take a deeper look at it, it's not all completely hopeless. For one thing, we're encouraged in this psalm to be persistent, even in our darkness, crying out to God. Be persistent. Verse 1. O Lord, God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. Or verse 9. My eye grows dim through sorrow. Every day I call upon you, O Lord. I spread out my hands to you. Every day. Or verse 13. But I, O Lord, cry to you in the morning. First thing, my prayer comes to you. And this psalm contains throughout an acknowledgement that God is the ultimate agent, the ultimate actor. That if we are to be brought out of our own isolation and darkness, God's got to act. God's got to move. So we keep crying out. Reach up and then also reach out to connect. And let the church be your ship where this ragtag, not a whole lot in common with each other aside from Jesus, group of people serve as the light of friendship to one another. Here's a true story. In the history of the Liberty Network, before I actually came to plant Liberty Collingswood, in the very early days, Liberty Fairmount, Liberty Northern Liberties, it, it changed. But the reputation of those first Liberty churches in the first couple of years is that they were really bad at community. The worship was good. The preaching was good. There was a lot of mercy ministry stuff going on. And you had at these First Liberty churches, all these young 20-somethings moving into the big city for the first time, didn't know anybody, really afraid, not wanting to engage in relationships with one another. I'll show up at a worship service, take a smoke break during passing of the peace, come back in, and then leave as quickly as possible. But by God's grace, this has changed, including at Liberty Collingswood. And one of the marks of our church over the years that I hear has been, this is a warm community. This is a welcoming community. This is a loving community. And I love those stories. And in covenant interviews, membership interviews that I do over the years, and old-timers, you've heard me say this before, but, and we just had a great in covenant class, maybe our largest class ever a couple of weeks ago. Hey, do you want to join Liberty Collingswood? And I'll tend to ask, what was it that, that brought you, drew you, made you stick at Liberty Collingswood? And I say, it's probably the sermons. And I'll say, it, you don't have to say the sermons. It could, could really be anything. I mean, I'm, I'm sure it was the sermons. But no, you tell me. But it, I'll just put down sermons here, if that's okay. And then invariably, invariably, people will say, no, community. I'm like, come on! But I love the stories of spontaneous acts of kindness and friendship and community that we celebrate. Let me tell you, you don't know the half of it, but I am privileged to be able to hear story after story after story. And for even the best of churches, 
And I believe that Liberty Collingswood is a pretty darn good church. Not every pastor could say, hey, I'd want to be a member here even if I wasn't a pastor. <laughs> I'm actually in the minority, believe it or not. Even for the best of churches, there are still negative stories. I've been showing up for a couple of months. Nobody knows my name. I've been here for a couple of years. And I've never hung out with anybody outside of Sunday morning. I've been coming here for years and years and years. And when I first started coming, a lot of people reached out to me. But then it seems like everybody else hived off with friendships, but I'm still here needing relationship. Keep reaching out. We need each other. We need each other. Following Jesus is not a solo activity. Following Jesus is not playing the instrument in your room and saying, hey, aren't I an awesome musician? Although it's good to practice music. But instead, we need other people. John Mark Comer, a pastor on the West Coast, has said things like, Jesus didn't have a disciple. He had disciples. He didn't just bring a person along with him, but there was a whole community. We need each other. And the best friendships of all are those gospel-founded, centered friendships where truth and love are operative in our conversations, where the scriptures are afoot where we love each other enough to step into awkward situations, to sacrifice of our own time and energy and resources to be with for other people. We love each other enough to sometimes say hard things to one another, and so on. And truly, it's the resources of the gospel of Jesus Christ that makes community work at the end of the day. Because if you know that Jesus is a giver to you, you are able to engage with community, not as a taker, but as a giver. And it changes everything. That changes everything. And so if you're lonely, let me say to you, as gently as I can, keep reaching out. Take those steps of courage to keep trying to connect. Know the peace and love and joy and security of Jesus so that you can keep asking and keep asking and keep asking and fight through that disappointment. And don't assume at church. Don't say, well, that person doesn't have any time to hang out with me. Make them say no. Put the ball in their court. And sometimes even with people that are really active at churches, and I'm not singling out ours here, oh, they're doing a ton of stuff. They must have a ton of friends. No, they're actually just doing a ton of stuff. And would actually love to be reached out more, checked in on more than they are. Take those courageous steps. And if you're filled already with community, that's awesome. Double down on the joy of giving, the joy of connecting, the joy of connecting with those that might not be in your affinity group. And that's great. Maybe on the, you know, connected to church or fringes of church or outside of our church and our various communities. Keep reaching out, keep reaching out, keep reaching out. And that'll put you in some awkward situations. That'll set you up for some disappointment. But you know who else was let down by his friends? Jesus. So you're in good company. One of the books we looked at last year about community, Better Together by Rusty George, said this. 
Consider the servant mentality of Jesus. He's willing to satisfy his need for community with those who are not worthy of his company. That's true. Jesus was better. Sorry, disciples. Jesus really was better than, than you were. But Jesus is willing to satisfy his need for community with those who are not worthy of his company. And he's willing to share his deepest, darkest times, this is Gethsemane, with those who will fall asleep on him during his greatest trial. If Jesus finds life and mission are better together, shouldn't we? And what if as a community of faith we could continue to push ahead from Psalm 88 to a song like Psalm 23? An interpretation of which we sing periodically here at Liberty Collingswood? Hallelujah. I am not alone. That's a profound sentiment. Let's make it so. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hey, could that have been the best sermon ever? Eh, the odds are strongly not in its favor. Still, thanks for listening, and be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. You can also check out our version of a preaching after party, the post-Sunday blues, a preaching post-mortem, on the same podcast feed where you can go backstage with the sermon. Live, speak, and serve at you later. Thank you.